Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. You can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you get your podcast. Just look for TruthQuest Podcast with Robert Furrow. You get our long-form teachings. You also get our shorter hot topics, which are just that, on different hot topics throughout the Bible. And then you also get our Q&As, which we open up to receive questions on YouTube, on Facebook, Facebook. So if you have a question and you're watching this and you want to you want to ask a question, then write it out in the comment section below. Put the word question or a question mark in front of it to help me be able to identify it and then read it a couple of times. Make sure it makes sense. Sometimes I'm reading the questions, I can't tell what they're about. Add the reference in and we can take time to go ahead and look up the reference and we'll answer the questions in a biblical way. The best that we can. The first question that we have today was one that was asked at our last Q&A, and somehow I overlooked it. Every once in a while, I'll get looking through the comment section and I'll just pass someone by. And this was, is tithing mandatory? And I thought it was really important to cover this question because so many churches say it is mandatory and, and that you're robbing from God if you don't do it. Now, in the Old Testament, under the law, to be sure, tithing was mandatory. You had to tithe. In fact, by the time it was all said and done, you gave 20-something percent to God. Which, remember, it was a theocracy. It was run by God. And the priests were paid by the gifts that you gave. And the king and the guard and all of that were paid through what they gave in Israel. And so they paid a lot. Kind of like we pay a lot. Uh, and then in, in, in the Old Testament, it said, you're robbing God. You're living in paneled houses Why God's house lies in ruins. And so often preachers will use that passage to make people feel like you're not tithing. Now, it is true that if everybody in the church tithes today, then we would be able to do so much more for the kingdom of God. That's the truth. And also, uh, about 80% of the people, about 20% of the people give 80% of the tithes, about 80% of the people give 20% of the tithes and offerings. But people will come to me and ask me if it's mandatory to tithe. I always say no, but you do need to give. It is mandatory to give, but it's not mandatory to tithe. But even in your giving, God wants you to not, we're not under the law. We've been set free from the law. The Bible says those who walk in the spirit are not under the law. And the law was a tutor to bring us to Christ. And once we've come to Christ, we no longer need the tutor. There's, there's no argument about it. We are not under the law. And pastors who pick and choose certain passages for their own advantages, and if you're a pastor and you're watching this, then stop it. Don't tell people it's mandatory to give. The Bible says in the New Testament a lot of different things about giving. None of them are that you're supposed to tithe. It was never reiterated in the New Testament. Now, some will argue that Abraham gave to Melchizedek before the law, and therefore it was before the law. That means it's instituted today. All right, let's just let's just have you prove that. Where does the Bible say when something happened before the law that it's instituted today, or that Abraham gave because it was mandated, or did he give because he wanted to? And everyone can tithe today if they want to. They could be like Abraham and they could give a tithe of what they want. So giving a tithe is 10%, and we're never told to do that in the New Testament. 
Now, there's a lot the Bible has to say about giving, and I've pulled up some of them, and I want to read some of them to you. But the Bible says, Jesus said, give, and it will be given unto you. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over will men give unto your bosom. He didn't tell us that to appeal to our greed, like television evangelists will tell you. And if you give to me, I got more of a blessing than other pastors do, you know, or other guys do. I have a hundredfold blessing if you give to me. Nonsense. Jesus was doing it for our generosity. Give. Be a generous person. Live a generous life, and it will be given to you. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, Each one must give as he decides in his own heart, not reluctantly under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, Paul was collecting a, a gift for the Jerusalem church, and he was passing through the churches collecting them. And Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, God loves a cheerful giver and give as you desire in your heart. This was to this particular call, but also you can give as you desire to the church. Give as you desire to the poor, but you should give to them. In Luke 6, 38 was the one that I had just quoted, given it will be given unto you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will men give into your lap. For within the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So God's saying, when you give, it will be given back to you. In Acts 35, 20, we're told that Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. So we're, we are more blessed when we give than if we actually turn around and receive from God. In 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 19, it says, for those who are rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches of God, who, rich, who provides richly for all of us with everything to enjoy, but they are to do good, to be rich in good works, and generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is true in life. James also tells us that this is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God, that you take care of widows and orphans. We're told to tell people to share. In Hebrews 13, 16, do not neglect to do good and to, um, to, or to share what you have. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Don't neglect to share what you have. Yes, we are to give, but we get to decide because we are to give with a cheerful heart. And never was the concept of tithing reiterated in the New Testament. If you want to talk about tithing or write in your beliefs what tithing is, write that it is a choice you can make, that you can choose to tithe, but you give as you desire in your heart. Don't rob people's joy by making them give. I'm telling you, so many churches do this. They have tithing as mandatory. They do not make people keep any other part of the law. But when it comes to tithing, they make it mandatory when the Bible doesn't make it mandatory at all. The Bible goes on to say, Jesus said, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old and treasures that have uh, and, and treasures in heaven that does not fail, where the thief uh, approaches and the moth, where the where, where no thief approaches and the moth does not destroy. For where your heart is, that will is where your treasure will be also. Verse 630 says, Give to everyone who begs from you. This is Jesus. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from the one who takes away, do not demand it back. Boy, that's a life of faith. Give to everyone who begs from you. That's pretty strong. 
Do you live in a place where there are a lot of beggars? Have you applied that passage to your life? Doesn't mean you've got to give a lot. James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift comes from above and comes from the Father of lights, to whom there is no variation and shifting of shadows. God gives us gifts and we should be like our Father who gives gifts unto men. Now, this is not a totality of all of the passages that the Bible says that we need to do. In fact, in the book of James, it says, if you are, if you see your brother in need, but you don't give them what they need, then you're not doing what God's called you to do. We need to be generous and willing to help one another. And I find that God's people are when they're aware of the difficulties and the struggles that are there. But no, tithing is not mandatory and churches need to stop saying that it is mandatory. We want to be biblical in everything that we do. I have a friend who's trying to find a church up in an area near Tucson and the ch all the churches that he went to had in their, um, in their statements of faith that they had to tithe. And he was just not going to go to a church that made it a point that, that you had to tithe. Because if they can't handle that part of the Bible right, then he doesn't want to go and entrust them with any other part. And I wonder how many churches are losing people because people know this is not biblical. Stop it. Let people give as they want to give and let God provide for you as God provides for you. It's okay to say, if you're a pastor, look, we're struggling, um, we're, our finances are down. If you can help us, we would appreciate that. But don't say, we're gonna close the doors. What are you gonna do if God doesn't provide for your church? You're gonna cut back what you do. And it's enough to say that. Hey, the tithing is down. We're gonna have to cut back what we're gonna do, what we're doing, which is okay. Whatever God guide, when he guides, he provides. And if we cut back, we cut back. But we want you to know, in case you want to be a part of what we're doing here to help us reach even more people for the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the kind of thing that we do at our church uh, when our tithes are down. Instead of trying to compel people to give, we give them an opportunity to give. And how much more powerful is that when that is the case? All right, I would love to have follow-up questions on giving and tithing. If you have questions about tithing or giving, uh, I would love to be able to look at those today and answer those questions, all right? So it's good to see you guys here. Good to have you join us. I appreciate y'all. I love the community uh, that we have here. I love the questions that you guys have. And uh, we have our first question from um, cr uh, Crush Dice the Best. Okay, good to have you here with us. I think this may be your first time here, maybe not. Um, someone asked the, uh, last week um, or similar, uh, continue to see numbers such as 33111555888666 in the Bible. Um, is there a biblical tie? Um, uh, crush dice, uh, crush dice the best. Um, I think that numerology is a part of the Bible, and I think that God created our universe with certain mathematical equations. Math was discovered, it wasn't created, and I think that we find some of those things in the Bible. I think people take them too far. I think they make them say things they don't say. Generally, I disagree with books on numerology, although I will agree with certain aspects of them. Um, I don't know where you find 333-111-555-888. Um, I do know 
you find 153, the number of fish Jesus caught. Uh, you find 40 days of rain, 40 days in the wilderness. You find 12 apostles, 12 disciples. Um, you find three in the, the inner circle. You find three with the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You find one with one God. And um, so these numbers are biblical. Seven, uh, you find often in the book of Revelation and certainly means something there. It means complete and, and everything's being completed. And so you find that number coming there again and again. But um, crush, crush dice the best. If you have a passage or two where it uses one of these one 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 three 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 five 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 that you're talking about, I would love to take a look at them. All right. And um, so, uh, but anyway, yeah, so you can ask a follow-up on that. Um, Crush Dice the Best also says, hmm, I wonder if I should stop um, stop tithing. I feel guilty. I read scripture, but still bad. But maybe I can give to another charity and no longer tithe. And that's certainly true. You can give as you determine in your heart. But you want to be you want to be generous, and you do want to be generous towards the gospel. Jesus said, "Make friends with 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 the the mammon of this world for heaven, which is the work of the church." So the church isn't a bad thing to give to. It's just bad when they make it mandatory to tithe. Um, give I, my, my encouragement is to give above and beyond. Let tithing be be uh, a mark where you start and then move from there. God said, if you give abundantly, you'll receive abundantly. If you give sparingly, you'll receive sparingly. And so we want to be those who are generous. God didn't give us the verses to appeal to our greed, but certainly we don't want to start going, um, I don't want to give because then we're going to receive, I don't want to give because we're going to receive sparingly. We want to take all the passages as they are. My pet peeve is just when churches take part of the law, which is tithing, and tell people they're robbing from God. To them, I say, give me a little bit of shuddy. Don't hound people on these things or make these your messages. It's not what God wants. So, uh, Jari has a question about our study from last Sunday. And this Q&A is uh, a continuation of the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel Tucson. And last week we were in Revelation chapter 9 and we talked about Apollyon, the destroyer. If, um, and Jari says, is a, uh, if Apollyon is Satan, why does he give permission to torment the people on the earth during the tribulation period? If he is being worshipped, please expound more on the locusts. All right, um, Jari, I don't know if I'm going to be able to expound more on it than what I did in our study on Wednesday night. I uh, talked about Apollyon, I talked about the star that fell from heaven, talked about the bottomless pit, and I talked about the these locusts who seem to be creatures, but also have a demonic god over, or a, de a demon over them there as their king, and that's Apollyon, the destroyer. And they are told that they can only, they can't kill people, they can only torment them for five months. This is the first judgment on men in the book of Revelation. And we're already on chapter nine. Up to this point, it's been on the earth. It's been the overall aspects of what the tribulation period is going to be like. But here we find the first judgment on men, and it's a bad one, that these scorpions sting men. They want to die, and they cannot die. Um, as to your question, I, you know, I said, I don't, Personally, I don't believe Apollyon is Satan 
because I think that there was enough descriptions of Satan, the devil, the dragon, the serpent of old, that they could have been pointed out if Apollyon was Satan. I don't believe the star falling from heaven is Satan. Now, I'm probably in the minority there. And whenever, whenever you're in the minority, it might be good to go, well, maybe I shouldn't be so confident. So, I'm in the minority. Most people would think the star, if the fallen star is Satan, uh, I think a good number of people put Apollyon, the destroyer, as being Satan. Um, I kind of tend to think he's not. So, um, am I going to um, play um, crush the dice the best, crush dice the best, um, believing that Satan, this isn't Satan? No, I'm not going to bet on it. I, instead, I'm just going to say, this is this is what I think. I'm trying to to handle scripture in a responsible manner. I think a lot of people don't handle it in a responsible manner. I think that we all should try to do that, okay? Uh, so Jari has a follow-up question to that. Jari says, follow-up, is it true Satan hates humanity? Even if they worship him, he doesn't care. Um, yeah, I don't know about the worship aspect of it, Jari, but I do know that Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And it's been shown that he wants to take out people, that his desire is to take people down. He is the father of lies. And um, so, yeah, I would, yeah, Satan um, hates humanity. I think that's a good way to put it. I'm trying to think of passages that may back that up. Um, he is, he blinds the eyes of those who do not believe. Uh, he wants to destroy. We are to put on our armor so we can stand against the wiles of the enemy. So he's sneaky. So I, I think there's enough verses that we can stand and say that he hates humanity. And um, even if they worship him, I, I would imagine it doesn't make them like him. All right. So we have a, a question from Psych Man. Psych Man, good to see you. Um, Psych Man says, 1 Corinthians 7, 8, it's is good. And 1 Corinthians 7, 9, it's better. Can you take a stab at what it means in the verse? I think just about everything. Um, I think just about everything. Thanks for this, Sir Robert. Thank you. Uh, Psych Man 45, I appreciate that. Let's go ahead and take a look at uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 7, 8, and 9. 7, 8, and 9. And I will go ahead and put this up on the screen. Thank you, Psych Man, for your questions. Let me see your question. Let me see if I can get this uh, figured out. So here it says, uh, But I say to you, I say to you, unmarried, and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Okay? Now, okay, so that was, um, was that 8 and 9? That was 8 and 9. So the good and the better, for it is better for them to marry than to burn with passion. Um, all right, so Psych Man, I'm not sure that these are equivalent. Let's just read them as they are and let's just look at it. But I say to you, but I say to you, unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am. So it's good to stay single because God has a plan. Now, I lost my wife in 2012. I became single and for about a year and nine months or so, I wasn't interested in anyone else. Didn't know if I really would get married. But the grief kind of lightened. I don't know if lightened is the best way to put it. 
I came to a point where I realized I didn't like being alone, I didn't wanna be alone, and I wanted to have someone in my life, and I began to pray that God would bring someone into my life. Now, it would have been good for me to remain alone, but the Bible also says, if a man finds a wife, he finds a good thing. And so it's good to find a wife as well, but it's good to remain even as Paul is. Now he goes on to say, um, if they cannot exercise self-control, which means if your sexual drive is strong and you're finding yourself struggling with this, let them marry for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So it's not saying it's better to marry than to, than to be, be single, except if you're burning with passion. It's better if you can remain unmarried, but if you can't control yourself, then it's better to be married. And for me, my motivation was, I, 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 I honestly, I don't think I was done with my, the sexual aspect of my life, but the motivation for me was not wanting to be alone. I wanted to have someone that was a companion for me. The nights um, pretty much drove me crazy, I tried to stay busy but I found myself really desiring um, companionship. And that's really what drove me. So the good is one thing, the better is, it's better for you to get married than to burn with sexual passion if you can't handle that. And, um, and I think that that's, uh, I think that kind of speaks for itself, all right? So thank you very much, Psych Man. I appreciate you, I appreciate your question. Uh, we have a question from Cara Sanchez who says, Hebrews 7, 11, and 28. Did Jesus have to come from the line of Judah because the old law was given to that tribe? Huh. And Jesus came to break the old law. So was the tribe of, was the, was the law given to Judah in a way that it wasn't given to the other tribes? That's my question. So, I, if, if this is true and God did give the law to Judah in a special way that he didn't to other tribes, then I'm not aware of that, okay? So let's go to Hebrews 7. This is a, a long section, 11 through 28. Let's just start to read it. We'll see where we go from there. I'm not sure I'm gonna read all of it, Cara, but let's take a look and see if we can get what you're saying here. Did Jesus have to come from the line of Judah because the old law was given to that tribe and Jesus came to break the old law? Um, interesting thought. Let's see what we find. Let's go ahead and take a look. So this is Hebrews 11, no, or this is Hebrews 7, 11. And that's what you said, right, Cara? Yeah, Hebrews 7, 11. All right, so Hebrews 7, 11 says, Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further would there be of any priest that any priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to that of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. So the priesthood had to change by necessity because Jesus would be a priest by the order of Melchizedek and would live forever where those in the Aaronic priesthood would die. Verse 13, for he of whom these things were spoken belongs to another tribe. He's not of the tribe of Levi. The reason that he has to be of the order of Melchizedek is because he's of the tribe of not of the tribe of Levi, not because the the um, came, the the new priest should come from the tribe of Judah. Judah can't be a priest, so he's got to be a priesthood in the order of Melchizedek, which we could talk about Melchizedek more. He's either a type of Jesus or he is Jesus. 
it goes on to say, these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. That is from the tribe of Judah, no one officiated altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest. So Melchizedek is spoken of three times in the Bible. Genesis, where Abraham gives a tenth to Melchizedek. His name means the king of peace or the king of Salem, seems to be a king of Jerusalem. Um, then he's talked about in the book of Psalms that he, um, and Jesus is connected to that passage in the book of Psalms. And then he's talked, that's about a thousand years later. And then another thousand years, he's talked about in, in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek because he's not of Levi, so he can't be of that priesthood. And this priesthood is an eternal priesthood that has made some to believe that Melchizedek, because he has no beginning of days nor end of days, is actually a theophany Christ in the Old Testament. It says there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life for he testifies. See how far we're going to go. Okay. For you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So that's the Psalms that says that. We can see where that's at. If I do that, it's Psalms 110, Hebrews 5, 6, uh, 620 and 721 talks about Melchizedek. Um, for on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former. An, uh, annulling? What does annulling mean? If you annul a marriage, what does it mean? So annulling of the former, that would be the law, commandment because of the weakness of the unprofitableness for the law made nothing perfect. So the law has been annulled. It's a great passage. On the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And that's Jesus. Let's read on. And, and we're trying to find where Judah received the law in a way that the other, um, that the other uh, tribes did not. Inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests with an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has shown and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's the oath by which Jesus is a priest forever. But so much Jesus has become, by so much Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. We are no longer under the old covenant, but under the new covenant, Jesus gave us uh, the Lord's table and said, this is the cup of the new covenant. As therefore, as there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing, it's a pretty simple reason why you can't continue being a priest, you die. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he also able to save to the uttermost those who come to him, who come to God through him. Notice that. What a statement. He is able to save to the uttermost. That is phenomenal. That's powerful. I wish I had um, one of those whoop whoop things set up. I could hit whoop whoop as we're, we're reading through this because um, he is a priesthood forever and therefore he's able to save the uttermost. The law could not save, but he's able to save to the uttermost. It goes on to say, to make intercession for them, for such a high priest was fitting for us who, the, who is holy, harmless, unedifying, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, so does not need daily so does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices. So his sacrifice was once and for all. He doesn't need to continue on daily. First for his own sins and then for the people. That was the old priest. Jesus didn't sacrifice for his sins because as Hebrews tells us, he was tempted in all ways that we were and yet without sin. For this he did once for all when he offered himself up 
for the law appoints as high priest men who have weakness, but the word of the oath by which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. All right, so great passage. I'm really glad that we took time to cover that. So much good stuff that's in there. However, I don't see anything, Kara, about Judah being better. And if you have another passage that says that our Judah are receiving the law in a different way than the rest of the tribes did, that all the tribes are given the law as far as I know. And if Judah was given it in a different way, I don't know about it. All right. So if you have a, a passage that tells us that, I would love to see that. All right, and so that we can go ahead and take time to look at it. But thank you for bringing up that great passage. It really is a good one. All right, so we have a question from Paul. Paul says, since there is an altar in heaven, according to the last video about God's throne, Isaiah 6, 1 through 7, is it for angels? So that was, yeah, we did a hot topic on the throne of God. I think we talked about seven things about God's throne. Um, and it says, um, is it for angels? If so, what kind of animals in heaven get sacrificed? Uh, this is a, a good question, Paul. Um, I've never thought of the altar in heaven as being something that is for angels. Uh, in Hebrews, and I'm trying to remember exactly where this reference is, in Hebrews, it says that Moses had to make the tabernacle according to the pattern because it was a shadow of things in heaven. So the, the altar on earth was a shadow of an altar in heaven. The, the, the Ark of the Covenant was a shadow of an Ark of the Covenant in heaven. The incense altar was a, a shadow of the incense altar in heaven. The table of showbread, the, um, the candlestick, all of those things, candelabra, all of those things were a shadow of those things in heaven. I don't think the Bible ever talks about angels having sacrifices. So we need more, Paul, than just an altar in heaven to make it a place where angels made sacrifices. An altar in heaven could be a place where God received the sacrifice of Jesus, where the blood and bulls and goats were given here, but were then transferred spiritually to the altar up in heaven, or where Jesus literally laid down his life on the cross, and that altar in heaven speaks of that. Um, and I think that we can look at the altar in heaven under the altar are the souls of our martyrs. And we have the martyrs cry in the, th uh, the fifth seal um, when it's opened uh, there in the book of Revelation. And so they sacrifice their lives and so they're under the altar. Um, we would need something like that that would connect it to angels for it to be angels. If we don't, we impose on the text. And this is something that you learn that you can't do and that pastors need to stay as far away from it as they can just because something's in heaven now you want to make it angels that would be imposing on the text if there's another passage that helps you connect it with angels then maybe then but you don't want to impose on the text and make the text say something that it that never meant to say or be something that was never meant um, the bible's pretty clear and gives us direction we may need, you know, the secret things belong to God, the revealed things belong to us. We have not had it all revealed yet. In fact, remember in the book of Revelation, there's the seven thunders that utter something and then God intervenes and says, don't write that down. This is not for you. 
And that's a pretty amazing thing. We don't have all the information. We don't know perfectly as we are known. And uh, that's pretty important. So if you, Paul, have a passage that speaks of angels at the altar, we see an angel go to the altar in Isaiah, pick up a coal and bring it and touch the lips of Isaiah. But Isaiah is the one who's purified with that, not the angel that brings him the coal. All right, so if you have a passage that connects angels to the altar in a way where they give sacrifices, then let's talk about that further. Otherwise, let's not impose things on the text that shouldn't be brought on the text. All right, so if there's any lesson to learn from that, and if we can find it, great, then that would be exciting. But if it's not there, um, the idea that the angels could possibly be forgiven would be one that I haven't heard of yet, but it would be exciting. Um, I don't know that it's there, all right? So, Rod has a follow-up question. Is the Bible really always referring uh, to money or more spiritual? So, Rod, I'm not sure I understand your question. Maybe you can rephrase this. Is the Bible really always referring to money? So, when it talks about give and it will be given unto you, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, and will men give unto your bosom? Um, I don't think it's... Paul wrote to the church and in Philippi who shared with him in his ministry in Corinth. And Paul said, no other church shared with me when he was in, I think, prison in Rome as he wrote to the Philippians and they were a poor church. And he said, my God will meet your needs according to his riches. So needs there is not money. So yes, as you ask this question, uh, could it ever, does the Bible always refer to money or could it be spiritual? It could be some other need. It might not be spiritual, but it might be another need. It might be a spiritual need, it might be a physical need, but doesn't have to be money. So if you give in money, God doesn't need to give back to you in money. I think that's a good insight. Um, and But God will meet your needs according to your riches. There might be something I need far greater than I need money. Might be something in my life that I need. And when I give, God gives back to me based on what I gave. All right. So we have, uh, let's see the statement from Susan here. Susan said, tithes are not mandatory, but as we choose to tithe, at least in my case, God has gone over and above for my family in blessings. And I think that's a great point, Susan. Um, tithing is not mandatory. And God's promised if you give, it will be given back to you. So I would tie the blessings to tithing, not from the blessing of tithing under the law, but that when we give, God gives back to us. And God gave us tithe as a, I see it as a guideline. And I want to go above and beyond it. And I want to give and, and allow, I want to live a generous lifestyle. I want to tip generously. I want to, I want to give generously to those who have need. I want to give to those who beg. I just want to live my life the way that Christ does. And he's promised a blessing that comes back to it. And I think that's good. And I think a tithing is a good place to be. Now, Susan, does it make you better that you tithe and someone else doesn't? No. Um, could someone who gives 5% be just as blessed as you are? Maybe. Maybe they're giving in other ways. 
but the Bible does say in the measure you give, it will be measured back to you. And God did this to appeal to our generosity, not to our greed, that we are generous. And I like your faith. You, Susan, you tithe in faith, believing God's going to bless you because you're tithing. That's not a bad thing, as long as you understand it's not mandatory. And then you can have joy in giving. It's not mandatory. You're giving because God said, I will bless you. And you believe that if you tithe, and the Bible says, if you do anything by faith, if you, if you, if, if you believe something is right and you do it by faith, then it's right to do it. It's to, to, to live by faith. And I like that life of faith. And um, yeah, so, and, and I want to live the same way. I want God. I want to give to God. I want to give to people around me uh, so that God will be, and, and not be afraid to do it because God is generous um, with us. All right. So um, Psych Man has uh, another question. Is this your second question, Psych Man? Coming off a beach, a woman asked me if she could have my towel for her baby to sleep on. I just handed it to her um, without thought but it belonged to the hotel. <laughs> Was that bad? Um, I, I don't think so, psych man. Um, I think you were helping her out. She was probably from the same hotel. Uh, if you really feel convicted about it, then send them a check for the towel. But I don't think it was bad for you to give the towel. She probably could have gone up to a place and got a towel from somebody anyway, right, on the beach, because the hotels make the towels available. Um, usually on the beach, they make them available. So I don't know all the circumstances, but I'm going to say, I'm going to say no. All right. So, uh, appreciate you, psych man. Um, Renee has a question. Good to see you, Renee. Good to have you guys all join us here. If you're visiting uh, with us for the first time, this is a Q&A where we answer questions through the lens of scripture. And if you have a question about a difficult passage in the Bible or something you haven't understood, we would love to take a shot at answering that. Just write the word question down and then write out your question, reread it a couple of times, make sure that it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit it. And uh, we take time to take these questions a couple times a week and to look over the things that are asked. So Renee says, I'm currently reading Harvest. Pastor Chuck limited himself to a simple lifestyle and enabled him to oversee millions. What scripture can we apply to ourselves that to live a simple life? Boy, Renee, I think there's a lot of them. Um, let's just think about this for a minute. Um, the Bible says, remind, and I wish I knew the passages, remind them to mind their own business and to live a quiet life. And that's not the only time that it says that. There are several places where the Bible tells us to live a peaceable, quiet life and to mind your own business. And um, yeah, Pastor Chuck had become, okay, this is my understanding, Pastor Chuck had become independently wealthy by inheritance and never lived like it. Never drove a car that was like it, never had fast, flashy clothes, never talked about it. Uh, and yeah, he lived a simple lifestyle. And I, the Bible tells us to in several places to do that. And um, let me just take a, take a stab at finding a couple of those verses. What does the Bible say about living a simple lifestyle? Let me see if I can find that really quick. I'll just give this a quick look at and see if I can find it. All right. 
So these are, this is five Bible verses on living a simple lifestyle. So let's take a look at them. So the first one is, I'm going to just have them on my phone here and read them. The first one is Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. So Jesus said that if we seek his kingdom and his righteousness, if that's first, if we take care of his business, he'll be about our business. Um, Philippians 4.12, uh, I know how to be brought low, Paul said, and I know how to abound. And in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance of need. Um, Matthew eleven thirteen. come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. Let me ask one more question here. What does the Bible say about minding your own business? All right, let me just take a look here. See if I can find these that come up about minding your own business. All right, so um, here we go. First uh, Thessalonians 4, 11, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as was instructed. Proverbs 26, 17, whoever meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like one who takes a, a passing dog by the ears. I love that. Talk about minding your own business. If you get involved in a quarrel that's not yours, you want to be involved in these quarrels, you are taking a dog by the ears. That's what it says. 1 Timothy 5.13, besides that, they learned uh, to be idle, idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies uh, saying what they should not. So this is kind of like work with your hands and, um, and uh, get out of other people's business. Uh, First Thessalonians, did we already do First Thessalonians 4? Yeah, we did. Uh, let's see if I can just find a couple more here. First uh, Peter 4, 5, let nothing be done. Uh, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. So kind of minding your own business. Um, so anyway, yeah, the Bible has a lot to say, uh, Renee, about living a simple life, minding your own business, being quiet, um, and not doing things through selfish ambition, um, those kind of things, all right? So we could talk more if you find certain passages you have questions about, I would love to do that. So um, Crush, Crushed Dice the Best says, um, Emperor Scribble, I don't think Pastor understood. I don't see 333-111-222, et cetera, in the Bible. It's like every time I see the clock, it's 333 or 333 AM or 111 or 222, or the TV just everywhere. All right. So thanks, crush the dice the best. Um, what does my what does my wife say when the, the clock says it's eleven eleven, or um, three thirty three? Um, I can't remember what she says, but yeah, she 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 makes a statement when she notices that. I don't think there's anything biblical about that. Crush dice the best. I I don't. Um, and. Um, I just think you're probably noticing it. It's kind of like when you buy a new car. Um, I have a charger and I see chargers everywhere. If I had another car, I might see other cars everywhere. All right. Um, so, uh, I appreciate you. All right. Um, Douglas has a question. In Acts 18, 8, 19, we find that people who had been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son appear to need the laying on of hands to receive the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews 5, it talks about one of the basic principles of laying on of hands and baptisms, plural. It seems the modern church doesn't use laying on of hands for the reception of the Holy Spirit. Um, 
All right, Douglas. Yeah, let's take a look at this and let's talk about this. Uh, do you have to lay hands on someone for them to receive the Holy Spirit? So in Acts chapter eight, the gospel has gone to Samaria. It has, it has been given to the Jews. Now it's given to Samaria. Then it's going to be given to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. Samaria is in between. They're Jews and, and, and Gentiles. And the Holy Spirit comes upon them. So this is like the Samaritan baptism. You have the Jewish baptism in Acts 2, the Samaritan baptism in Acts 8, the baptism in Acts 10 of the Gentiles. So if we go to Acts 8, the reference that you showed, let's go there and let's read this and let's see what it says. You're all the way down in, in Acts 8 and 19. Um, let me just see if I want to start from the beginning. I got to go to Acts 8, not Acts 1. That'd be a lot, a lot of reading. I want to see if I want to start from verse 1. Um, all right, so because of Paul, Saul um, was concentrating on uh, persecution, a great persecution arose, and the gospel goes to Samaria. Samaria. Um, Samaria. And um, Saul's wreaking havoc on the church. Um, so let's pick it up in verse 4, and we'll go from there. All right. So therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitude with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles in which he did. For And Philip was a deacon, by the way. He wasn't an apostle. And so there's miracles being done by Philip, who, I mean, he's, uh, yeah, he's a deacon, not an apostle. For unclean spirits came crying with a loud voice out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Could this be because the gospel is going to Samaria for the first time? That's been suggested, why there were so many miracles. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished people of Samaria claiming that he was someone great to whom they all gave heed from the least to the great. This man was a great, um, this man is the great power of God and they heeded him because they were astonished with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the kingdom, the things concerning the kingdom of God, the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. And we're going to take it, this is water baptism. Remember, not every time baptism is brought up in the Bible doesn't mean it's water baptism. Uh, bab be, means to be immersed, and we are baptized into the body of Christ through the Spirit. But they are baptized. When Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them. So they were born again, and they had the Holy Spirit inside of them, because they were baptized, if they were baptized by the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ or baptized by water, I think this is going to show it was baptism by water here in a minute. It says they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So again, that doesn't help us if it's baptism by water or being baptized in the body of Christ. They laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. This is a case. Now, it is a fallacy to think that because one place you lay hands on someone and they receive the Holy Spirit, that that's the only way the Holy Spirit is ever given. And, and you want to be careful when you're approaching the Bible like that. Just because the Bible says in one thing happened in one way doesn't mean it always happened in that way. 
but they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw through the laying on of the hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money saying, give, um, give me this power also. And Peter ends up rebuking your money perish with you. And Peter ends up rebuking him. I don't know that Simon saying, this is Simon the sorcerer, seeing that the, that mirror, that, that the uh, power also uh, gave me, give me this power. Uh, let's go back to it again, up here again. When Simon saw that through the laying on of hands, the, uh, the, the, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. Now, it doesn't mean every time the Holy Spirit's given, they offer them money. And we could go to Acts chapter 10 to help understand that. Because in Acts chapter 10, Peter is up on his housetop. He's told not to reject those things, which God has called clean. Uh, and um, then Peter goes to the Gentile's house, to Cornelius' house. Let me see if I've got the right place here. All right, so let me, let's just go ahead and read some of this. So this is what we would call the, the Gentile baptism of the Spirit. You have the baptism of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2 for the Jewish people in the, in the temple. You've got Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. Then you've got Acts chapter 10. You've got Gentiles. And now Peter, it says, and the following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and he had called together his relatives and close friends. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I myself of a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company or to go uh, to um, one of another nation. But God has shown me I should not call any of my com any man common or unclean. This is new for Peter. He says, I'm a good Jewish boy. I don't go into Gentiles' houses. But God told me I'm supposed to come here. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I, I asked for them, for what reason have you sent for me? So Cornelius said, for days ago, I was fasting until this hour. And in the ninth hour, I prayed in my house. Behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard and your alms remembered. Hey, we were talking about giving. He was a man who was generous. His alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon, who is surnamed Peter. He is lodging at the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I went immediately. Um, now, therefore, all are present before God to hear all the things commanded by God. All right. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteously is accepted by him. Uh, this is new to Peter. There's still going to be problems in the church. They're still going to think you got to become, there's going to be Judaizers who are Jews, believing people have to become Jewish to be saved. There are legalists who are Gentiles, believing that they have to become Gentiles to be saved. So he's going to get back to this in Acts 15. But here, the word which, well, which God sent to all the children of Israel, preaching that through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, the word you knew and was proclaimed throughout all of Judea began in Galilee after the baptism which John preached. Now God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy Spirit, and the power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by devils, for God was with him, and we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and the Gentiles, whom they killed by hanging on a tree, whom God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him and arose um, after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach 
to the people and to testify, that is, he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. This is a great passage, by the way. So much you could gain from this. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes on him will receive the remission of sins. Notice that salvation. He's telling them, whoever believes on him will receive the remission of sins. People who are critical of altar calls need to read these things. He's got a group of people there. He tells them, whoever believes on him will receive the remission of sins. So what happens? While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all of those who heard these words and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished as many as came to Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, can anyone forbid water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord and they asked him to stay a few more days. So you can see, Douglas, that not everyone had the Holy Spirit as, as the laying on of hands. Now, I do know that this is a teaching in certain churches, basically some Pentecostal churches, that you have to lay hands on somebody to receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Uh, Calvary Chapel is the church I pastor, is a charismatic church, and we believe in the gifts of the Spirit, but we do not believe it is only by the laying on of hands you receive the Holy Spirit. Do I lay hands on people and ask and pray that they would receive the Holy Spirit? Yes. Do I think it's mandatory? No. Okay? So, um, let me just read through your question here again. Um, yeah, I don't think that that we can assume that's... Um, there are certain fallacies that we apply to Scripture. Because it appears in one place, we make a rule out of it, and that becomes, that's a bad idea when we see that other places, there's are different ways that the Holy Spirit can be given, okay? Um, so, uh, crush dice the best. Let me see if your question relates. Um, Yeah, it's a, it's a follow-up question. So, well, we have one question a week. We only have an hour together here on Wednesdays and Saturdays. And so, we usually ask people to ask one question. You can ask a follow-up on a question that's already been asked to clarify, which I really like. So, this is a follow-up. So, only those who burn with passion should um, should and get, get married or should get married. Um, no people who want to marry but nothing, yet other people to ma uh, marry two or three or more. Hopefully at the same time there. All right. Um, life is not fair. Did your mother ever tell you life was fair? Crush the dice, uh, crush dice the best. Um, obviously life is not fair. And some people get married several times and some people don't get married at all. Um, I don't think the passage is saying that. I, I think Paul's saying it's better for you to remain single. If you decide that you want to get married, this is going to be, this is going to be me. I wasn't burning in passion, so I said I've got to get married because I can't control myself. I wanted, I wanted companionship. I wanted to marry someone. Yes, I wanted the, 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 the sexual lifestyle of being married. Yes, I did, but that wasn't what drove me. So I don't think it's only those. It's just saying it would be better if, if someone decides to be single. I think God can override that. I think it's better for me as a pastor to be married because there were women who were approaching me just because I was single. And it's better for me to be married. 
That's not to say it when it might not have been better for me to remain single, but God allowed me to be married again. And so I don't think, again, here's another fallacy that just because the Bible says it's better and then, um, but if you're burned with passion, that it's better for you to get married. It's good for you to remain single, but if you're burned with passion, it's better to get married, that that's the only reason for you to get married. There could be other reasons to get married. One of them could be because God wants it. That's what God wants for you. Um, all right, thank you, Car. I appreciate that. So, um, yeah, so Paul McGuire has a question again about this altar in heaven and whether it's angels. How do angels get forgiveness for sins? I don't know that they do, uh, Paul. I don't know if they can. Do angels get new uncorruptible bodies? I None of this, we don't, we don't have anything in scripture that says this. I believe in angel sin, so do I. Unrepentant ones are demons and repentant ones are saved. I Okay, that that's fine. You can believe whatever you wanna believe, but the question is, Paul, is that biblical? Does the Bible say it? So in other words, as a pastor, you're never going to stand up and say, angels can repent. In fact, I think that's, there's, it's so foreign to the concept of the Bible. You don't ever see it. You don't see anything to it. Um, you can believe it, sure, but is it biblical? Not that I know of. And if it is, then please show the passage, but I, I'm going to, I'm going to stand pretty strong on this one. 38 years of teaching the Bible, never came across an angel repenting or being saved. And, and remember, at Calvary Chapel, we teach through the Bible. So I've taught through the entire Bible three or four times and um, never seen angels even looking like they would repent. So I don't think it's something biblical. Uh, I'm open to being proven wrong. All right? I've been wrong before. So I'm open to being wrong, proven wrong, but I don't think I am. All right? Um, Rod says, Revelation 21.4, no more death. Wouldn't that cancel the sacrifices? And so, um, are you just talking about the altar in heaven, Rod? Are you talking about that during the millennium, the Jews sacrificed during that time? Um, no more death. Yeah, that's the new heaven and the new earth. Okay, so let's just let's just go to what time is it? Yeah, yeah, let's go to Revelation uh, 21. So, you you have the millennium. And in the millennium, the the, the Jews are, are in Jerusalem and they're in Israel. And God's reigns, God, Jesus is reigning above them, as, among them as the King of David. We are ruling and reigning with him. And then in Revelation 24, we have the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem that comes down from that, where am I at? Why did I get there? Um, all things are made new. So let me just put this on the screen for you. So it says, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth that passed away. So there was no more sea. I, I saw John and the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And it goes on to talk about that. So yes, um, it would. Everything's new. It's a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. There is no more death. There are no more sacrifices. During the millennium, there are, but that's before Revelation 21. All right? So we just have a minute left here. Do we have a quick question we can get at? I will look at your questions. If you want to go ahead and continue to write them down, 
Um, looks like we have a few more here. I'll take a look at these questions later on and see if I want to pick one out for the beginning of our Q&A on Saturday. All right, Lord willing. No, on Wednesday. We are not going to have a Q&A on Wednesday. We've got a conference at the church, and um, we're not going to have a Q&A on Wednesday. There will be a Wednesday evening service. I think David Guzek uh, is teaching there. He's from Calvary Chapel Bible College. He pastored uh, Calvary Chapel Santa Barbara for a while. I'm really excited about him coming out. We have a conference, by the way, that's online uh, that you can join starting Monday at noon. We have um, we have Frank Turek. It's an apologetics conference. Um, we have Frank Turek. Uh, in fact, let me just go. I'm just going to go ahead and give this to you. I'm going to take a couple minutes to do this because let me see if I can. I was going to say because I can, but I got to make sure I can. Let's go this way. Yeah. And I want to give you the different studies that we have at this conference. This is a this, uh, Calvary Chapel Southwest Pastors and Leadership Conference. We've held it at our church for quite a few years. And um, we have it again this year. And it is on apologetics. And I don't, I can't see them here. I can see them on, all right, so I can't see them here. I can see them on my computer, um, but I don't have that up. Uh, but you can go to look, go to calvarytucson.com, click on Defending the Faith Conference. You're going to see uh, uh, Greg Kokel, who wrote the book Tactics. He's going to talk to us about how to interact with people, how to talk with people when they're angry, um, how to have discussions about Christ with family members. Um, we have Dr. Frank Turek, who's going to join us, who's going to, great, he gets great apologist. Um, Natasha Crane is going to give us an interview. She wrote a book on apologetics, but also on how to raise children with the Lord. Dr. Leighton Flowers will be there. Um, he talks about Calvinism and um, how to defend when it invades your church. Remember, Calvary chapels are not Calvinistic. And so when Calvinism invades the church, uh, we want to talk about what's right and wrong about Calvinism. They're brothers in Christ but how to defend and how to stop them. Um, and, and that's by just informing leaders of these arguments against Calvinism that they, they're able to kind of stop it from, from happening. All right, so I am out of time here. Um, Becca, I see your question. Um, let me just put, bring your question in here. This may be one we start with. Is there a wrong way to speak to pray if you pray an innocent manner? Does it upset the spiritual realm? I thought I heard someone say, if you rebuke things in an incorrect way, you can get counter attacks. Um, I don't, without knowing a lot more what you're talking about, Becca, I think that's whack. I think God knows our hearts and knows our prayer. And I don't think that the, the, the there's no place in the Bible that ever says that if you rebuke things in an incorrect way, you get a counterattack. These are things that people come up with as their own experiences, and they are so-called experts in an area because they've written a book or they're they're doing it and they're showing you how to do it. And it's very unbiblical. And I I don't know exactly the source of all of this, so I don't want to be too critical. But I'm th this is the kind of stuff that drives me pretty much crazy. Okay. The Bible tells us how to overcome the enemy. We can talk about how to rebuke the devil. We can talk about how to pray to bind the enemy, how to do real spiritual warfare. This could be a question that we could have at another Q&A. And maybe even start with um, with next week. Well, you know, what, how, how do we enter into real spiritual warfare? Biblical spiritual warfare. That's the key. Because this that you just asked is not biblical spiritual warfare. 
All right. So, um, love you guys. Really glad you're here. Really glad you've joined us. Stay close to Jesus. Um, join us for the service tonight as we talk about, as we see the first revival ever in the church and the things that, that Peter talked about that brought about this first revival, 3,000 people get saved, and then God adds daily to the church those who are being saved. And so we're gonna be talking about that passage. That's tonight in about an hour. We'll have the service. I'll be teaching in about an hour and 20 minutes. Of course, tomorrow there'll be three services, same teaching, and then Monday noon, we have our Defending the Faith Conference. You can join us online. Uh, you can watch those live. We'd love you to be able to do that, all right? We'd love you to join us online. We wanna help equip you in any way that we can. So we will see you. Uh, stay close to Jesus. Uh, be good. Do the things God calls you to do. Walk before him uh, by the power of his spirit. For if you walk in the, in the spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If you walk in the flesh, you will not fulfill the things of the spirit. All right, God bless you, and uh, I am out.